to 2 Thessalonians 1. If, in fact, you have brought a Bible, if not, that's okay. We'll have all scriptures projected up here on the screen. We are continuing our series on 1 and 2 Thessalonians that we have uh, aptly titled Encouragement for Today. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, my name's Otto, and as I like to say, it is, in fact, a palindrome. You can spell it frontwards and backwards, so we have fun with it. Dad and Mom and race car are a few examples of those. Second Thessalonians 1 is where we will be. As I mentioned, we've been doing a series on First Thessalonians. Pastor Matt wrapped it up last week, and we're continuing the series this week by introducing the second book that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church in the town of Thessalonica. We'll get there just here in a moment. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had to stand up for something and stand up for the right thing when it was unpopular? I have, and it wasn't fun. Uh, several years ago, I had a fairly close-knit relationship uh, with some guys, and the relationship uh, with this particular group of people uh, appeared to be going quite well. Uh, we were, were a part of a particular initiative together, and things were moving along. And about six months into this particular relationship, I started to notice that one of my friends who was a part of this network uh, was spending too much time with a woman who wasn't his wife. And as you might imagine, I observed this, and my feeling about it was it, wasn't, it did, just didn't seem right. And I had a prompting in my heart to say something, and, uh, but I was kind of anxious about it, and I wanted to make sure that I was on point, so I sought out some of my mentors and got some advice. I think I even sat down with one of our pastors at our church, and they said that your observations seem to all kind of be pointing in the same direction. We think you should sit down and have a conversation uh, with this friend of yours, and we think you should say exactly what you're thinking, which was, dude, you're spending time with a woman that is not your wife, and you should stop. It was a very basic biblical truth. And so, um, with some mild trepidation, I spoke to him this particular truth that I had observed, and I said to him, brother, you're spending time with a woman who is not your wife and I really think you need to be careful. And I really think you need to consider your intentions and also the perceptions that people might be gathering from these behaviors. And I told him, I said, look, I'm not saying anything immoral is going on, but I'm just concerned that you're putting yourself in a situation that could be damaging for your marriage, could be damaging for your family, and it could be damaging for your reputation. Well, the conversation didn't go as well as I would have preferred um, because, as you might imagine, as you might have experienced, when you speak truth to another person who is engaged in some kind of behavior that is kind of off, offline, or out of line, rather, you're going to get one of two responses, either anger or acceptance of what you're saying. And unfortunately, I got anger and for the next days and weeks to come, I was on the receiving end of some really nasty things. And my relationship with this friend 
eventually came to an end. Now, I learned from this experience a basic reality about life that I'm sure you probably know already. I learned that speaking the truth to people who do not want to hear it is a very quick way to garner vicious opposition. And so today as we look at the book of 2 Thessalonians, I want you to keep that story in mind because the Thessalonian Christians are experiencing a very similar thing. This was a very new church. Uh, They had been around for two to three years, and they were speaking the biblical truth to their community, and they were experiencing vicious opposition. Unfortunately, uh, many of them were enduring very, very harsh opposition. Some of them were arrested by local authorities. Some of them were thrown into jail, and many of them had their lives threatened. And part of the reason for this is because a lot of the new believers in this church had just come out of a heathen culture, a very immoral culture, and those who were still in this heathen culture uh, wanted them to be silenced, they wanted them to stop speaking truth, and they were putting pressure on them to do this. They wanted to disprove and discredit their faith in Christ and his truth. And so just like any good pastor, the Apostle Paul, who actually started this church, was sensitive to their needs, and he wanted to make sure that these new Thessalonian Christians didn't give up because the going had gotten to be very, very tough. But in spite of how hard it was, Paul wanted to convey that God was still on his throne and that God was still working in his life, in their lives. So the message Paul wants to convey to them in my sort of 21st century language is simply this. When the going gets tough, keep going. Are you in 2 Thessalonians 1? So the first thing that Paul tells them in 2 Thessalonians 1 is that even though the going has gotten tough, you need to remember when the pressure has been greater, your faith will get stronger. Let's read verses 3 through 4. It says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, Because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all of the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. So Paul is basically saying here that this pressure that is on you is building something in you. In a similar way that muscles might grow in the physical body, When it's exposed to resistance, God was making their faith muscle grow when they endured this spiritual resistance. And also he mentions that the growth in their faith was linked to their love for one another. He says in this verse, the love all of you have for one another is increasing. So Paul is saying, I'm so proud that you have become what a church is supposed to be. Not only are you connected to God, not only are you growing in your faith in God, but you're also connected to one another on a very deep level. This is what the pressure in their lives was producing for them, a closer connection to God and a closer connection to one another. Now, when I went through this situation with my friends a few years ago, it was many years ago, in fact, I really had to exercise my faith muscle. And part of the reason I did this um, was because of 
the people that God brought into my life during this time. I had so many people who were praying for me. They would speak words of encouragement into my life. They loved me. They lifted me up because, quite honestly, I couldn't handle this situation on my own. And they filled my life with faith when I might have lost touch with it if I would have been left to my own devices. Right around this same time, I had the good fortune of uh, meeting someone who was a pretty cool guy. Uh, This person's name was Mike Collins. Uh, He played uh, on the defensive line for the Ohio State Buckeyes back in the late 90s. He was about 6'4 and 300 pounds. He could bench about 500 pounds, and he could, like, squat a Mack truck. He was a massive piece of human flesh. And we started a relationship. He was going to my church, and he knew that I worked out. And he said, hey, you know, buddy, why don't we uh, start working out together? And I thought, yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. (laughs) So uh, the first day, we started, you know, doing what he liked to do. He He liked to work on his lower body. He liked to work on his legs. So... We went into the weight room, and I mean, it was, just, it was just terrible. The first exercise we go to is a squat. You might know that when you do a squat in the weight room, you put weights on your back, and you go down, and you come back up. And I could barely do 250 pounds at this time. I think he literally could squat around 1,000 pounds. I mean, when he put weight on that bar, it would, it would bend, you know, and it looked like it was going to break, like a toothpick. And when I put weight on it, it didn't, it stayed straight. (laughs) So we started working out and we started doing squats and he would get down there and he'd put 500 pounds on and he would go up and down and up and down and up and down. And then I'd put half that weight on there and just would grunt and groan and make weird noises and spit at the mirror. (laughs) But he would get behind me and he would do this thing where he would kind of mimic what I was doing. He would go down with me and he would say things to me and he would say, come on, lift it. You say, good job. You say, this is no problem. You can do this. And the very next time we would do this together, he would do the same thing. It felt kind of odd to have this huge mammoth of a human being behind me, following me down. He would say, come on, you can do this. Good job. No problem. He did this over and over and over, and I hated him for it. And part of the reason I hated him for it is because when we would do this, he'd always call me buddy. And I would say, well, I wouldn't say to him because he was scary. I would think to myself, I wish you would stop calling me buddy. Because the last thing I feel like at this moment in time is the fact that we're buddies. He's crushing me. But he would say, come on, you can lift it. Good job. No problem. And within about a month and a half... I increased my squat from about 250 pounds to about 400 pounds. Now, I can't do that now, but I could do that back then because of the encouragement and the faith that he put in me. And this is what the Thessalonians learned as they grew their faith muscle. They were saying the same stuff to one another. You got this. You can lift it. Great job, and that's what Paul is telling them. Your faith is growing because you're relying on one another to get through this. Not only that, Paul wanted them to understand 
that this was all a part of God's plan. He says in verse 5, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, Paul uses kind of a fancy academic term here. He said, this is evidence of your faith. And as you know, in any reputable study, one cannot make a claim without running a test to come up with evidence. And so Paul is saying that the struggle and the hardship that they had experienced was their test. And the mere fact that they were still in the game was evidence that God was doing something in their lives. It was evidence that God had a plan for them. It's like saying to some of you, in spite of what you have been through, at least you're here in church today, right? And the fact that you're here and you haven't given up is foolproof data that God has a plan for your life. Just because you've experienced bad things doesn't mean that God will not use it in a good way. You may be going through a situation right now that is difficult, but the more difficult thing may be recognizing God's plan on your life when you go through it. And so the circumstances in your life and the circumstances in the Thessalonians' life was not in vain because God is bringing good out of bad and it is becoming clear to them the more they go through it as far as the Apostle Paul is concerned. This is why he says in Romans 8, 28, for we know that in all things God can work for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. This is what Paul is reminding them that although you've had it very rough, You need to understand that God has a plan. God knows what he's doing. He's still on his throne, and he will not waste anything that you have gone through. The third reminder Paul gives them is this, that when the going gets rough, you must know that God will make things right in the end. Verse 6 says that God is just, and he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. And to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And this includes you, he says, because you have believed our testimony to you. Now, as a well-trained Jew, Paul would have known the Old Testament references to the second coming. And I have provided some statistics for you up here about the Old Testament references to the second coming and other items in addition to that that might kind of illuminate your understanding about this particular idea Um, For instance, some of the theologians state that there are about 2,000 references to the second coming in the Old Testament. And 17 books of the Old Testament actually give the second coming of Christ attention. So Paul was trying to remind them of things that they might have known because some of the Christians in this church actually had come out of a Jewish background. And Paul himself, as you know, was very well trained as a Jew. So Paul would have known about the warnings that God had given to Pharaoh before he totally removed them and freed his people from Egypt. Paul would have also known about God's warning to the Babylonians and the eventual destruction that they would endure 
for their wrongdoing. Paul knew that when God promised something, that he would follow through. And in fact, so much of Paul's Bible was defined by what we call predictive prophecy, which basically foretells the future. And at this moment in history, approximately two-thirds of the Old Testament's prophecy had already been fulfilled. The remaining one-third was yet to be fulfilled, and this was the promise of God that Paul intended to convey to these Thessalonian believers. For Paul knew that God had already made good on most of his promises, and he wanted these Christians to know that they could continue to trust him to do the same on his other promises, which included the second coming. Now, the other part of Paul's message in this passage of Scripture that is very striking to me, and I don't know how it struck you, but when I read it over and over, I really wanted to deal with the message that Paul is conveying about how he's going to um, separate people from God when Christ comes back during the second coming. Because to me, it kind of sounds harsh. It kind of sounds unloving and uncaring. But I think it's important to remember a little bit of what we've already talked about in terms of the pressure and the resistance that they were enduring. It wasn't that the Thessalonians, you know, had it easy. They had it very, very hard. They were viciously opposed. As you might remember in Acts chapter 17, when Paul started the church with Silas, he was kicked out of the church, he was kicked out of town, and he had to leave after hiding in a person by the name whose house was Jason. And Jason also was arrested by authorities. He was put in jail, and they threatened his life. So this was the storyline of the Thessalonian church, and ever since the start of this church, their lives had been threatened, and they were stricken with fear constantly. In my opinion, it wouldn't be too different than the vicious opposition that many Christians are facing today around the world. We know that Christians today are captured, we know that they're tortured, and they're killed for their Christian faith. And these Thessalonians were in a similar situation. So it wasn't like Paul, the punishment that Paul spoke of didn't fit the crime. They were under harsh pressure and resistance. So when he wrote these words, he wanted them to know that God would right the wrongs that they had endured. So it's so important at this point, I think, to understand that God does not rush to judgment. He does not rush to condemnation among those who do not readily accept him. In fact, the many who might vehemently oppose him may eventually turn to him, which is truly God's heart. This is why it says in the Old Testament, he is slow to anger and abounding in love. But God will judge the world and he does not want to watch the affairs of the world go by passively. This is why I think N.T. Wright says this. It should be up on the screen for you. He says, God is not a petty or arbitrary tyrant who throws his political opponents into jail simply for being on the wrong side. God is the living and loving creator who must either judge the world or stand accused of injustice, of letting wickedness triumph. And I think this is what Paul is trying to say, because God has to deal with sin in one way or another. And he has chosen to deal with sin by sending his son to save the world from eternal separation from God. And because Jesus was the sacrifice, Jesus will be the judge. So in God's domain, since Jesus died for our sin, 
Jesus will judge sin. This has been God's plan from the beginning, and it will be his plan until the end. I heard a story one time about a Christian doctor who had tried to witness to a very moral woman who had belonged to his church, but she denied the need for salvation and the reality of future judgment. And so she says to this doctor, she said, you know, God loves me too much to condemn me. I cannot believe that God would make such a place as a lake of fire that the Bible speaks of. That just seems absurd to me. Well, later on in this woman's life, she became ill, and the diagnosis was cancer, and an operation was necessary for her. And so the doctor says to her, I wonder if I should really operate on you. I really love you too much, he says, to cut into you and give you pain. She said, wait a minute, doctor, if you really love me, you would do everything possible to save me. How can you permit this awful thing to remain in my body? See, God has already done everything possible to save the world, and there's no other way to do it. Just as a physician cannot love health without hating disease and dealing with it, so God cannot love righteousness without hating sin and judging it. The nature of God requires him to deal with sin and wrongdoing, and when sin and wrongdoing abound, God will respond. And in this situation, the Apostle Paul emphasizes God's eventual response to evil and its corresponding actions that come with it. In the end, God will settle the score and make things right. So after all of this, Paul ends this chapter by praying for the Thessalonians about all of this stuff that he had just mentioned in the letter so that God can continue with them in spite of what was going on. So Paul closes the chapter with a few key points in his prayer that I think have some encouraging points for all of us today. The first thing that Paul prays for is that God will fulfill the purpose for which you have been created. He says in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 11, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God will count you worthy of his calling and that by his power, he may fulfill every good purpose of yours. So Paul is saying here that in spite of what you have been through, when the going has gotten tough, remember that your life has a purpose, that your life has meaning, that just because it gets hard and just because people have opposed you does not mean that those things have to define you. It is still God's desire to fulfill the purpose for which you have been created. Paul understood that their enemy was trying to throw them off of the plan that God had on their lives, and he's trying to get them to stay focused. There's a story about uh, Yogi Berra and Hank Aaron playing in a World Series together many years ago. And in his usual custom, Yogi Berra liked to taunt players when they would come up to the bat. Yogi Berra was the catcher. And as Hank Aaron came to the plate, anybody know of Hank Aaron in here? So a good, good number of you know who he is. He was a well-known home run hitter. He came up to the plate. It was the World Series. And Yogi Berra tried to distract him by saying, Hey, Hank Aaron, you're holding the bat wrong. You're, you're supposed to hold it so you can read the trademark on the bat. And Hank Aaron didn't say anything. He just stepped up to the plate. And the next pitch came, and Hank Aaron hit it all the way out to the left field, and it was a home run. The crowd went crazy, and he was rounding the, bra- the bases. And after he tagged home plate, Hank Aaron looked at Yogi Berra and he said, I didn't come here to read trademarks. 
I came to hit home runs. See, the enemy wants to trip us up off of our game so that you will not fulfill your purpose that is on your life. He will taunt you. He will criticize you. He will get you to doubt the plan that God originally gave you. He might even put giant obstacles in your life to distract you. The shepherd boy David knew what this was all about, but he didn't shrink back in his purpose. He ran right into it. He said to Goliath, you come at me with sword, spear, and javelin. I come at you in the name of the God of Israel, whom you have been blaspheming. And this God is going to hand you over to me, and I'm going to cut your head off and leave your carcass for the birds. And everyone is going to know that there's a God in Israel more powerful than yours. And I love the next phrase in the Bible. It says, David ran straight at Goliath. How about you? Are you running towards the giant in front of you? Or are you shrinking back away from your God-intended purpose? Did you get tripped up when your opposition says things to you to get you off of your game? Maybe we all need to remember that Jesus said, Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Because the one who is in you is the one who has already planned your future. We all know that Jeremiah 29 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So since God has given you a purpose, God wants you to act on that purpose, which leads to our next point. In verse 11, God will enable us to exercise our faith muscle in spite of discomfort. Look at verse 11. It says, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God will count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by faith. Now, what's interesting about this is that I think Paul knew what was going on with with the Thessalonian Christians. I think that they knew, he knew their human tendency to maybe shrink back a little bit and to retreat after experiencing the opposition. I know certainly when I went through the experience that I shared a moment ago, I kind of went into a rabbit hole and kind of hid out for a little while. And I imagine he understood how these setbacks that they were experiencing made them want to kind of cave in to fear. But Paul is saying here, look, I know that things have gotten tough, but when the going gets tough, my prayer for you is to continue to act on the basis of what you believe, because God will prove himself faithful. One of my favorite stories uh, is in 2 Chronicles 20. It's a story about King Jehoshaphat, and I love sharing it um, because it's a powerful story. And a few years ago, when Josh Kopsick was over my house, he kept thinking that I was saying that Josh is fat. So... Please know that if I trip up in my words, that's not what I intend to say. He's like, are you saying I'm fat? I don't know. That's not what I'm saying, Josh. It's King Jehoshaphat. We read of him facing the opposition that was coming up against him with his feeble army force, which was no match for the powers that he was facing. He knew it. Everyone else knew it. But he was the leader, and he had to figure it out. And in 2 Chronicles 20... King Jehoshaphat puts his faith into action, and this is what it says of him. Verse 3, 
alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. And then on down to verse 12, for we have no power to face this vast army, he's praying to God, that is attacking us, and we do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. So in spite of what was coming against him, Jehoshaphat acted on his faith and admitted his limitations to God. And later in the story, we read about how God spoke to King Jehoshaphat as a result of his prayer and told him exactly what he needed to do. God told him to send his worship team out onto the battlefield. And this is a part of the scripture where it says that the battle is not man's, but the battle is the Lord's. And so what ends up happening is the armies that were coming against King Jehoshaphat started to attack one another. And within hours, uh, they had killed one another and God's people didn't even have to fight the battle. So the net result was that the people of God were victorious because a man acted on his faith in spite of his own limitations and feelings of discomfort. So I'm just wondering, is there an act of faith that you might need to take or an act of faith perhaps that I need to take? Maybe you need to act on your faith and pray for someone. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe you need to act on your faith to speak God's word over someone's life. Maybe you need to act on your faith to have a difficult conversation with someone. Maybe you need to act on your faith to ask for a brother or sister in Christ to pray with you about a secret sin. Maybe you need to act on your faith and out of humility admit to God that you do not have all the answers and you need him to help you. So we know from Jehoshaphat's story that God will meet you when you admit your limitations. I love the way the late Dr. Howard Hendricks said it. He said, you will get to the beginning of God when you get to the end of yourself. And God has so much more for you and me when you reach that point in your faith. He gives you a purpose so that you can act on that purpose and experience, experience this more that he has for you. So the last thing Paul says to them in this chapter that I absolutely love, he prays that God will use them so, God will, so that others will see God in them. Look at verse 12. It says, we pray this so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's prayer here is very simple. He is praying for others to see God in the Thessalonians. And I would imagine that's your prayer, that's my prayer, that's our goal, that others would see God in us as we try to live out our Christian life. And he's saying that no matter what happens, the point is, for others to see God in you and me in spite of the difficulty. One of my favorite stories that I think really illustrates this point is in Acts chapter 7. You may have read it before. It's the story of Stephen. He just preached the gospel uh, to that community, and the net result was very similar to what the Thessalonians were experiencing. They weren't receiving the message. In fact, he was also facing violent opposition. In Acts chapter 7, we read this. It says, when the members of the Sanhedrin 
heard of this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Now, in this moment, I think Stephen had a decision to make. Because I imagine he probably felt like picking up one of those stones and throwing it right back at them. I mean, wouldn't, that, wouldn't you feel that way? I know I would feel that way. When people falsely accuse me of wrongdoing, my nature is to strike back and to vindicate myself. But look at verse 59. It says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep, which is the biblical term for saying he died. So Stephen chose not to strike back, but instead he prayed for his enemies. And in fact, one of his greatest enemies in this story is found in the very next verse in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And it says this, And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Now, why is this detail important? We've probably already figured it out. But it's important because this man named Saul was the chief opponent of the gospel of Jesus that got Stephen stoned. He was the main leader who authorized the execution of Stephen. But then, as you probably know, in Acts chapter 9, this Saul figure encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his name thereafter changes to Paul. Now, this is the Paul who wrote the book that we are studying today, 2 Thessalonians. This is the Paul who wrote nearly half of the books of the New Testament. This is the Paul who became what we know as the world's greatest missionary and a contributing factor to Paul's radical life transformation was in part because Stephen prayed for him when Paul was opposing him. And because Stephen never picked up a stone to strike back, God used him to supernaturally turn Paul's world upside down. One of my favorite stories um, is about a samurai who was trying to learn the difference between heaven and hell. And he lived in a remote village in some Asian community. And he asked people in his community, can you tell me the difference between heaven and hell? And nobody could tell him. And then finally he bumped into somebody who said, there is a priest who lives remote in this forest. If you follow the path, it will lead to his hut, and he will tell you the, the difference between heaven and hell. So he went in the forest, and he looked for this hut where this priest was who supposedly knew the difference between heaven and hell, and he knocked on his door, and the priest comes to the door, and he just kind of peeks his head out. And the samurai says, I'm told that you know the difference between heaven and hell. Can you explain that to me? 
And the priest said, you know, looking at you, I just don't think that you're going to be able to understand this. Samurais aren't known for comprehending deep things, so I'm just going to have to ask you to go back to your village and to leave my hut. And he shut his door. Well, the samurai, you know, had some pride and ego, so he knocked on his door again. Priest comes back, opens the door. Samurai says, look, I'm not leaving until you tell me the difference between heaven and hell. The priest said, look, I already told you what I think, and I'm not going to tell you. And I really think that you're too dumb to figure out the fact <laughs> that I told you to leave the first time, and now you're knocking on my door again, asking me for this. And the priest proceeded to spit on the samurai's shoe, and the samurai could have it no more. So the samurai reached into his sheath, pulled out the sword, and was about to strike the priest. And as he was up at, at the top, the priest points at the sword and said, that, my friend, is hell. And it interrupted the samurai's pattern. He looked at his sword and looked at the priest, and he took the sword and he put it back in its sheath. And the priest pointed to that, and he said, that, my friend, is heaven. See, our human nature is to strike back when someone opposes us. But God's way is different than our way. And for others to see him in you and for others to see him in me, we have to set aside our own agenda and trust his way. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. What we learned from Stephen's life is that when the going got tough, he was willing to lay aside the human way for God's way. And because of this, the entire history and trajectory of Christianity was turned because Stephen allowed God to use him so others could see God in him. I'd like to close with a question for you today. What decision do you need to make so God can use your life so others can see him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for every person in this room. I suppose that there might be a few, there might be many who understand what it means um, when we say that life is tough. Who understand what it means to experience vicious opposition, maybe from family members, maybe from friends who have abandoned them because they have stood up for biblical truth. But I pray, God, that you would give those persons in this room, courage. I pray that you would give those persons in this room faith. I pray that you would give those persons in this room purpose. I pray that you would give those persons in this room the spirit of Stephen, who didn't strike back, but he prayed for Saul and everyone in that community so that they could experience you. Help us, God, to live with that same spirit. 
and help us to put our sword away so people can see heaven when they're around us. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name.